The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I don't believe that supermarkets ever really attempted to understand the needs of their disabled customers. We had one client who was agoraphobic. He did behind the scenes volunteering for the Trussell Trust. The only way that he was able to access groceries was that the Trussell Trust staff sent him the out-of-date stuff that the food banks wouldn't use themselves. Hello everyone, I'm Yasmin and delighted that you could join us on this podcast today. Welcome. We have got a great guest lined up for you today. We have got Chris Fry and you may have already seen his name in the papers, on social media, because he is everywhere at the moment. He represents people who've been treated badly by a service provider because of disability, age, race, gender, and he specializes in the Quality and Human Rights Act. He is from Fry Law Limited. So what really interested me about Chris Fry, our guest, is two things really. Me as a disabled person, I'm obviously really interested in how his cases really changed people's lives. I mean, it's changed my life, just getting on a bus or entering a restaurant, just everyday things that people take for granted. Chris Fry is at the forefront of making changes for disabled people. But also hearing about Chris Fry the man, what drives him, what his passion is, why this interest in disability law. Um, We really got to, to the nub of what it is that makes him tick and gives him that passion and determination. The Hearing. Welcome to The Hearing Podcast, Chris. I'm so excited to have you on this podcast because um, I must confess I've been following you around on Twitter. Um, That sounds a bit dodgy, I know, (laughs) Um, because I am a a disabled person myself, um, a wheelchair user, and I've noticed that your name just pops up everywhere whenever there's a disability discrimination claim your name is there. And so I thought I've got to get you on this podcast. So what I want to find out from you is, you know, what is your background and how did you come um, to be a lawyer? And particularly, what's the interest in equality and human rights work? Well, firstly, thanks very much for for having me on. And it's uh, it's rare that I I get asked about me. And uh, usually I spend all my time talking about the cases I'm running. Uh, so I'll do my best with this novelty. But um, so my background, well, um, I um, uh, I was the first of my family to go to university. Um, I think I always knew I wanted to do law, and mainly because I wasn't particularly academic, but I was really good at uh, negotiating my way out of trouble, frankly. I was probably always one of the shortest kids in my year and had to learn fairly quickly how to get out of trouble. And I also tended to be the one that stuck up for other people in situations. And those are clearly principles which have stuck with me throughout. And uh, uh, so, I mean, as I say, I wasn't always the most interested in school or the most academic, but there were certain subjects where I really did engage with them that I'd really run with and uh, I was always always quite entrepreneurial and uh, so I got got through school did my A-levels didn't get the grades I wanted to 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 go straight into law and did a bit of a detour into doing international business and so curiously in the middle of the recession in the 1990s I ended up coming out of university with having done start off with 
commercial subjects and business related subjects and then crossed over into doing the law degree. And that gave me something that most of my peers didn't have at that time, which was, you know, a wider skill set. Uh, I jumped into a, a small law firm, which was immediately taken over and sort of had to reapply for a job. And immediately started working for um, a guy who was a sort of very meritocratic entrepreneurial lawyer. And I found that was really the, you know, the the springboard for the way I approached my career all the way through until today, which was that uh, you were rewarded by what you did rather than who you were or how many years qualified you you were, for mm. example. So I was given loads of opportunities, which I thrived uh, thrived on, succeeded with, and initially my probably the first ten years of my career were spent on helping people who were uh, caused serious injury, illness, disease, and disability uh, as a consequence of the work that they did. And mm. in Sheffield, that was obviously a largely steel related. Um, I ran some. I found myself running some test litigation, uh, which went through to the Supreme Court on occupational hearing loss quite early in my career. Uh, group litigation of about 3,000 people. Uh, so I had a great time <laughs> initially for the first 10 years, sort of blazing yeah. my own trail. And then quite early on, I thought, well, you know, is this is this all there is? Uh, Have I already achieved everything I can achieve in this particular sphere? And about at that time, uh, a really great campaigning lawyer uh, called Douglas Johnson, who uh, works primarily in Sheffield and at the time in advice centres, uh, was running some important disability discrimination work through a case called Allen and RBS, which was the first case to go to um, a court of appeal on disability discrimination in services work uh, and was about whether Mr. Allen, uh, or what, sorry, whether the bank, the RBS in that case, in Sheffield High Street, in fact, was required to put a lift in to accommodate his disability needs mm, and I remember the case uh, yeah yeah I used to pass it every day actually and mm. uh, I almost got my hands on that case because Douglas thought he was gonna have to pass it over to me to to run uh, and then didn't um, but that that really was a facet that that was that was the that was the opening really into into my work on disability and Frankly, I thought, well, here's a really great opportunity to use the skills I've learned in the first, you know, in the first ten years of my career, and apply them to something which is really socially useful. And mm. um, so, what I really enjoyed was, and I'm not saying that you know the clients I acted for in sort of occupational illnesses work weren't grateful <laughs> for the work we were doing, but it was very much more focused on the money, whereas yeah. in the discrimination cases, it's focused on the change. And I really yeah. enjoyed the satisfaction of delivering that change in a way which made a difference to people who didn't even know we'd been involved. Uh, yeah. And the money was a use. The compensation was a really useful. It's just really useful after afterthought, really. And it's really nice to put yeah. a smile on people's faces. So uh, I started started on discrimination work probably in the uh, late to late noughties. Um and then when I finally opened my own law firm in Fry Law in 2000, I think it was 2017, uh, our focus uh, became solely on uh, taking on equality cases and specifically on disability discrimination. So at this mm. point, uh, as I'm speaking to you today, we now have 
two of the largest uh, group actions on disability discrimination in services um, that I think we've ever seen in this country uh, relating to, I think we've got, we've got coming up to 400 cases challenging supermarkets for failure to make reasonable adjustments. And we're yeah. uh, instructed by nearly 300 people uh, who are, are campaigning to persuade the Prime Minister to put interpreters onto uh, the daily live national addresses, for example. Um, yeah. So all that started out really with um, negotiating, <laughs> negotiating my way out of trouble and then sticking up for other people. And uh, I, and now I do that with uh, with the weight of a team behind me and with yeah. some, um, some fairly heavy weight and high level support, which I uh, lean on on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, I know that two of your lawyers are responsible for eight reported authorities in the Court of Appeal and two in the Supreme Court as well. So I know on your website it says, uh, and it's certainly true from what you've you've told me as well, that Fry Law is a northern-based national powerhouse. It certainly is. And I can really resonate with what you said about um, claimants. Not It's not just about the money or the compensation, although that's a nice to have, but the changes that your firm and you yourself have made through, you know, the Doug Pauley case, which is about a wheelchair user who took first buses to court in 2017, um, challenging them on their first come first serve uh, policy for a, a wheelchair user to fight on a space for, for that allocated space with uh, parents. Um, that has made massive changes to my own life. You know, I don't have to argue That's with great. a bus driver. Um, so thank you very much, Chris. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that case of Doug Pauly? Because that was that's when you first got my attention, actually. I noticed your name cropping up. Yeah, I mean, and, and Doug is just a, a fantastic guy as well. I mean, one of the flaws of the Equality Act is that it relies upon an individual being strong enough to take up the fight on their own. You know, and so whilst we're there every step of the way with them, it you know litigation can take its toll on people. It's emotionally challenging, uh, and uh, Doug was that person who was resilient enough and determined enough uh, to go on this, uh, for want of a better uh, travel-related pun, <laughs> go on this journey with us uh, to try, yeah. to make this change. And um, so we we took this case up initially um, after losing a big one. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes I do lose cases, although I get, uh, um, I'm a really bad loser. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I hold them like grudges throughout my career. But uh, I took, to start off with, I challenged this first come, first serve policy to the wheelchair space um, with Arriva. And uh, I acted for a dozen people up in the Northeast uh, who I thought had very good cases. Uh, and we litigated those cases and lost. And um, that was really a big blow. Uh, Doug had a similar case, but with the benefit of knowing how we'd lost, essentially. Um, and with the contacts I've made during that case, I thought that was the case that allowed us to make good that that loss. And it turned out to be right. So um, he, he routinely travelled on, uh, on buses. Uh, but was routinely not allowed on. And our case was very, very simple. It was that a first-come, first-served policy uh, is always over the wheelchair space is 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 not a fair policy. It discriminates against wheelchair users because nine times out 
project and there'll be somebody else in that space that that is not entitled to be there. And that uh, creating priority for wheelchair users over what was supposed to be the, their space and the only safe space that there was on a bus was, um, you know, w was legitimate, was uh, in accordance with the Equality Act. And honestly, it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a cause of some embarrassment to me in a sense that we got that case through a win in the county court a loss in the Court of Appeal, and then a, clearly a win in the Supreme Court, which was great. But mm. on the subject of what I succeeded in doing there was no more than what was morally right and should have been mm. done from the outset and shouldn't have needed lawyers to push it, which was to say that, you know, what might have been around, it was easily five years, might have been longer in litigation. All that work, hundreds of thousands of pounds, uh, and my first um, appearance in the Supreme Court on disability work was just to establish that a wheelchair user could use a wheelchair space. Um, yeah. But obviously it did did make a big change. We've recently changed, uh, developed that judgment, actually. So um, we've celebrated a case where, believe it or not, Arriva, coming back to the beginning of that cycle, um, have undertaken uh, to, put, to implement a variety of additional measures to uh, change what they call the garage culture uh, so as to enforce the principle that Doug Pauly's case uh, delivered which was that you know you really must do as much as possible to ensure accessibility so just asking somebody to move from that space isn't good enough you have to do a bit more um, so we're still going on that um, and um, uh, Doug, Doug remains a, a friend of mine uh, and uh, Doug's career uh, in activism and campaigning blossoms uh it's rare mm. that he doesn't have at least half a dozen cases on the go himself now <laughs> as well as those mm. who we're working on together uh, mm. but, it, but yeah i mean it's um uh, that that case was great uh because it, it it did sort of drive home what people can achieve albeit that you know obviously it puts a lot on the individual uh in that process yeah. I mean, have you noticed we're, we're now going through lockdown, although some measures have been restricted a bit. Um, but, you know, we're noticing that minority groups particularly have been disproportionately affected. So BMME, black minority ethnic, um, disabled people who may be classed as vulnerable or have more um, be more susceptible to catching the virus because of their immune systems or health conditions. Have you noticed an influx of, of claims and people really coming forward to your firm as a result of this? Yes, um, very significantly so. So right at the beginning of the uh, lockdown, our concern was that decisions would be taken very quickly without due regard to the impact on disabled people. Uh, and that was a view shared by many other uh, lawyers and influencers in the sector. And um, you know, a variety of us expressed those concerns at the outset in the hope that uh, we would be proved wrong and that equality impact assessments would be taken and disabled people will be thought about in planning. But unfortunately, that's proved to be wrong. Uh, mm. So, so far, I think since since lockdown started, I think the first thing that happened was the creation of the extremely clinically vulnerable list for disabled people. Um, and um, I think we were one of, I was one of the first people to flag a number of particular concerns about this and uh, worked with Disability Rights UK to uh, challenge the government over that not only the creation of the list and what that would mean to 
disabled people more generally uh, and their uh, rights and how to enforce them, but also um, in terms of data uh, and data sharing, so data protection. Um, so that so the first case that sort of crossed across <laughs> came across my desk was somebody saying, "Look, I've been I'm trying to get priority access to a supermarket. I think eighty percent of the people we're acting for at the moment relied upon online supermarket um, services as an everyday means of being able to get their groceries anyway before COVID. Mm. Uh, and when the system came under such intense pressure that all the sites just crumbled." It was disabled people who were most significantly affected by that. And what I have found astonishing is that uh, government has stepped in to create a solution for the private sector. Um, uh, and in a way which it has, um, you know, really, I think, potentially damaged the way in which the private sector and businesses in particular think about what they have to do and their obligations to disabled people. So I don't believe. And I may be proved wrong because there is a case on the way about this, but I don't believe that supermarkets ever really attempted to understand the needs of their disabled customers. And so that when the system went down, whilst they they did have a uh, an obligation to make reasonable adjustments to, pro in our case, to, as I say, to prioritise disabled people who are more disadvantaged because they were unable to get out to achieve shopping in other ways because they were required to shield um, or, or they're ex uh, extremely clinically vulnerable. Um, that that they that they didn't know what to do. Uh, so I think the government set up the extremely clinically vulnerable list. Um, that's changed the language of disability. Yeah, um, being disabled doesn't mean that you're vulnerable. Uh, that's an entirely different concept altogether. Yeah, I'm not keen on that word. No, <laughs> neither am I. Some people are vulnerable, but. We, we make that natural association, unfortunately, disabled, vulnerable, and it's it's not always helpful. I like to say susceptible sometimes in certain contexts. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, and it fails to recognise that what disables people is not their clinical condition. It's the barriers that society puts in their way. And that was the mm. whole purpose of the Equality Act and the duty to make reasonable adjustments. So, um so what we found was initially that people were being refused access because they weren't disabled enough under the uh, extremely clinically vulnerable list, which I think was fairly toxic. Um, but also that uh, the willingness of government to hand over um, details, which was led at the time by the insertion of your NHS medical number uh, into that system without telling us what the safeguards were. So we now know we now do not know what information supermarkets who are at the end of the day no different than say fry law limited as a legal entity um, mm. to have the details of uh, millions of people potentially including their health details and these supermarkets have uh, some of them have um, subsidiaries who are in banking and insurance and i find it very alarming so so the first <laughs> so to come back to your question uh, the first thing that happened uh, through COVID was this alarm about uh, how am I going to feed myself and what's going to, am I going to be obliged to give my, put myself on a list somewhere? And then from there, it turned into, um, you know, well, numerous questions, often similar questions from numerous people actually coming through, uh, essentially on my social media, 
Uh, so what we've learned through COVID is that social media is the most accessible forum for uh, disabled mm. people. I think for all of us generally. Um, and so we we quickly became inundated with inquiries. And uh, me and Catherine Castley, who's uh, uh, one of the, I consider the UK's leading discrimination barristers, um, co-founded something called Disability Rights Advice TV, which was just a Zoom chat initially, uh, twice a week to answer questions about what's happening. Uh, so, so people could access information from us and our legal advice and it would empower them, uh, make them mm. realise they're not isolated or alone. Uh, and so we set that up and um, that that now receives regularly uh, up to 1,600 viewers every week uh, dealing with oh. some of the, the big topical questions. So, um, so what we found is uh, clearly uh, those numbers support uh, what we were saying about, you know, the way in which uh, society or the societal changes at the moment are impacting on disabled people uh, and the mm. need to make sure that people know that they have rights. Those rights have not changed. Uh, the Equality Act has not been amended under the, under the, the coronavirus uh, amendments, um, mm. although various other bits have. Uh, and an extension of that is that... Um, the profession has become much better at collaborating. So mm. whilst it used to be me doing work of a particular type um, and somebody else doing public law work and somebody else doing employment work, what we've seen through this crisis is that everybody's linking in better together. And I think that's got to be yeah. really much better uh, for the yeah. evolution. So I am an optimist. I am a life's optimist. <laughs> um, uh, but subject to that disclaimer, my view is that the rights of disabled people potentially coming out of uh, this COVID situation might well be recognised as being e more easier to enforce and more accessible because yeah. the sector has pulled together in the way it has. And uh, I may prove to be very wrong about that, but <laughs> that is my hope. Well, I, you've read my mind because I, I was interested in your view on whether COVID-19 will, will actually change attitudes towards minority groups, particularly disabled people that you represent because what we know is is that this virus is is uh, it's not an equalizer in fact we are being disproportionately affected certain groups and and from your cases you can see with you know uh, disabled people challenging supermarkets um and and you, the fact that you've had to set up disability rights advice uh, tv and you've had so many people tuning in shows that there's a real interest there so I mean, do, do you think that attitudes will change as a result of COVID-19, that people are learning more about disabled people's rights and access and, and shining a light on, on these issues? What's, what's your view, Chris? Yeah, I think they are. Um, I think people are showing that they are more prepared to stand up for themselves now than they were before and that social media, because everybody's forced down that route, is um, you know, a, much, a much more effective tool. Um, and uh, whilst there may be others who disagree with this, my, uh, you know, my my view is that, um, you know, that, that this is going to create a sort of social change that normally sort of, you know, wars do uh, in terms of moving moving mm. attitudes forward, uh, and and that, you know, ultimately the facts are that seven hundred people have instructed us in the last month, um, 
that that wouldn't ever have dreamed of asserting their rights that would have just made do before yeah, well, we were very good at that, the people. Yeah, I mean, you know, despite what's said about compensation cultures, you know, that it's clearly not the case here. I think people put up, maybe because compensation isn't the driving factor in discrimination cases, but people put up with loads uh, that they just could put up with before and couldn't be bothered with the difficulty with. So, for mm. example, we acted for, um, I acted for a guy called Paul Edwards, who's a great guy, um, worked with him. Uh, a few years ago, he's blind. He has two disabled daughters. One has Down syndrome and the other one cystic fibrosis and autism. Uh, for mm. years, he'd been a customer of a particular supermarket, Tesco's. Um, and uh, week in, week out, he'd had these bookings. Uh, it's much easier for them as a family. He's he's blind, so navigating a supermarket on his own wouldn't be very easy anyway, obviously. Let alone social distancing, yeah let alone social distancing, but I mean, he needs sighted assistance. Um, uh, mm. So he always did his online shopping, but he could never complete the delivery section because it wasn't compatible with his screen reader. And uh, But it wasn't a problem before because he'd just get someone else to do it and it'd be fine because he could still he could still complete his transaction online. But of course, COVID mm. changed that. So not only could he not get a slot, uh, even get onto the website online, um, well, that was the problem. I suppose he couldn't get on online, uh, and it's it's drawn to the fore that in fact the problems were there pre-COVID, uh, but now he was forced into doing something about it. Uh, and in mm. fact, what Paul did was persuade Tesco's did agree to provide him with priority access. Although I think that was more to do with the BBC than our input on that particular occasion. <laughs> um, <laughs> to but, take the credit. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, in fact, what we did what we did do uh, last week, hot off the press, is that uh, we we threatened injunctive relief against Tesco uh, for on behalf of one of our clients, Joanne Basket, who uh, I is, that case, is a lot yeah. Of, yeah, and and uh, so one of the problems we had with the Equality Acts was, and it comes back to your point about what happens in COVID and is it changing? I suppose it's driving mm. innovation. So what we decided to do was instead of waiting for something to go wrong before we fix it, which is generally what happens with the Equality Act and the, the way it works, is that we we said we're going to apply for an injunction requiring you to give this person priority access pending uh, the outcome of the legal case. And actually what we found was within 24 hours, Tesco's legal team um, had uh, had said, well, look, regardless of the legals, we're going to put this person first. And by the end of the phone call, we'd agreed that that was going to apply to all of our clients, regardless of um, the legal position, which is obviously great uh, mm. and really big news. And uh, and we're hoping to build on that. Yeah, because Joanne Basket's case, as I understand it, is that she's disabled. Um, she, she couldn't leave her house and um, she couldn't secure a, a online shopping slot. Um, so she made a claim for discrimination, but she wasn't on the shielding list. I understand. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So first of all, she was disabled, but she wasn't classed as extremely clinically vulnerable. And that term again. Mm. Um, so she yeah. wasn't on the ECV list, um, but she got herself priority access nonetheless, which is um, which is excellent. <laughs> um, having having persuaded them that she was still nonetheless disabled and entitled to a reasonable adjustment um which by the way the for those of you listening who 
you don't recognize the difference. The definition of disability is anything, an impairment which has a substantial impact on your day-to-day life and you've had for 12 months or more. Um, and there are 14 million disabled people in the UK. Uh, the extremely clinically vulnerable list applies to about 10% of those people. So it creates a new tier, um, which is, um, as I've said earlier, unattractive as a proposition. But uh, but but generally, so, so Joanne managed to get herself priority, but then the next problem, and I think this is an evolution of what we're seeing about um, reasonable adjustments and services out, coming out of lockdown, said, well, okay, we'll give you priority, but you have... You, you've got an eight-hour window, so we'll deliver it at any time in those eight hours. But she has particular care needs, so she has a care assistant between, you know, I think it's between one and three. So if the delivery isn't provided between one and three, she it might as well not happen. She can't get it. She can't collect mm. it. She can't disinfect it. She can't put it away. Um, and much to Tesco's credit, I have to say, um, they have agreed to go that extra mile and to... Um, to, so as they say, put the customer first. Uh, I'm sure we'll have a disagreement with them about whether uh, that was also their legal obligation, but it doesn't really matter because from Joanne's perspective, she now has um, she now has reassurance that if we go into another spike and we go back to the same crunch that we had a few months ago, that 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 she is at least able to survive uh, because she will have food deliveries. Uh, Mm. Which, which sounds sounds ridiculous when you put it in those terms, but I mean, it, it was getting that serious. We had yeah. we had one client who was agoraphobic, and um, he received personal independence payments for that. Um, uh, he did behind the scenes volunteering for the Trussell Trust, and um, the only way that he would that he was able to access groceries was that the Trussell Trust staff sent him the out-of-date stuff that the food banks wouldn't use themselves. Oh, you know? gosh. Then we, yeah. had, then we, had another, we had another couple who were shielding, and they, they'd survived on rationing three pot noodles for a week. And uh, so, uh, I mean, the, the, there's a lot that's, yeah. that's not seen by the general public at the moment, in particular, uh, you know, looking outside and seeing how much traffic's now on the roads and how busy the supermarkets are and how nobody's mm. paying attention to two-meter social distancing. There, There is there's a lot that's not visible uh, in disability work um, mm. that, that needs to be flagged up and recognized. And uh, um, I sound like I'm going to rant on that now, so I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's brilliant that, that lawyers like you and, and your firm are shining a light on these issues and they're really um, coming to the fore now it's a shame we've had a we have to have a pandemic to, to bring these issues to light and I guess the influx of claims is 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 also because um, when people survival is threatened you know getting basic necessities and food you have to speak up don't you so it's fantastic that you're all there to represent and provide that free online resource the um, disability rights advice tv which is fantastic I tuned in think it was last week and really learned a lot and got a lot from the experts and got some really good advice so um i do urge people to to tune into that it's, it's excellent so chris i mean you you've had lots of um successful claims um which have made you know which are really high profile um this might be a tricky question but do, do you have a <laughs> a case that you're really most proud of or that something 
that sticks in your mind that you thought well, I've really made a difference here to, to people's lives you said about that passion of that it's not just about getting money for people obviously that's secondary for for disability rights um, and discrimination cases but where you've really thought that's made such an impact can you think of one that sticks in your mind there are often cases I work on where um, the outcome I know the outcome is going to matter to other people who won't ever know that the case was brought um, which is an advantage of you know to other lawyers listening into this um, I would say it's really good for the soul to do these kinds of cases because ultimately uh, you know that that what you've done is change things for people um, you know I, there are a number of cases which were settled which don't get talked about nationally um, which make that difference and then there are cases which win with precedence, which obviously make a big splash. And then there are cases which actually attract attention uh, simply by virtue of the fact that you've agreed to take the issue on. And so there are lot, lots of little little wins along the way, mm. but there are some big standout moments for me. Um, yeah. And um, they're not always about the big cases. Uh, I mean, obviously, Doug's case in the Supreme Court um, was amazing, you know, um, you know, um, I was his support was incredible, and um, just to know that I mean you know he that was a that was one of those sort of TV moments in the courtroom where you know I turned around and everyone was crying because they were so happy, oh, which is obviously a novel experience for most lawyers who uh, <laughs> used to people crying because they're not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was that, uh, and that really I was proud. I was proud of Doug, and I was proud mm -hmm. of everybody for persevering. So. So I was happy with that one. Um, there are cases, um, you know, so we do some university university discrimination cases which overwhelmingly settle with confidentiality agreements at mediations and, you know, the difference that those outcomes make to people and people that won't even know they brought the cases by changes to the way in which courses are delivered, for example, you know, they're, they're particularly satisfying. And those are often people who know um will go on to to be uh you know doctors consultants um you know people who will go on through life doing great things so chris what i'm really intrigued about is is where this affinity with minority groups come from particularly disabled people i guess and and where you have this empathy from where where does that originate from I've actually done a bit of soul searching about this myself, really, over over time. And uh, actually, I think there are two two places it comes from, and and I have to say subconsciously. And the first one was that um, as I was growing up, I remember very vividly uh, when I was a seven year old boy, my dad, who was a, a very well well known broadcaster and journalist, was totally uh, taken out by a form of weirdly chicken pox which paralyzed his lungs put him in a coma for three months over christmas totally turned our lives upside down and it and it really changed his life and ours and um, I mean, it was never seen as anything that would get in the way he was a really you know great sort of fighting sort of guy and um uh, and it was just something that happened uh, but then from a personal perspective um in 2003 i um, very unexpectedly became ill and just went to the A&E for a blood test and was sort of didn't check out for about three weeks uh, and it turned out I had a form of chronic myeloid leukemia which 
is very rare for somebody who's still in their twenties. Uh, and I was lucky to be alive, but despite all the life-threatening stuff, which is a young, free and single guy building his career, you're not really that bothered about. Actually, what overwhelmingly what bothered me was that 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 was going to label me, that was going to define me as a condition, that my employers were going to take away opportunities, um, which um, which I would not have been able to live with. And um, in fact, the opposite happened. I worked at a firm that uh, supported me and encouraged me and gave me those opportunities. And, you know, fundamentally what concerns me then is that I was lucky. Uh, I, I I don't know <laughs> I don't know what it was that made me so lucky through those stages. I was, you know, just a good combination of people around me. But not mm-hmm. everybody has that. And I I think there are so many talented people able to achieve so much that are just written off because they're in a wheelchair. I mean, I have for people who tell me that they don't even, people talk to their care assistants and not them, you know, and I just cannot tolerate it. And the motivating factor for me then is that, and I haven't, and for, for years I have not said, thing about that because ultimately I still don't want it to define me as a person or to be a reason why you instruct me to act for you because there is sometimes pushback from disabled people who say I'm not going to instruct this guy because he's white middle-aged you know lawyer who doesn't understand disability well they're right Mm. about the, t- the first two I am white and I am middle-aged and I'm also overweight <laughs> but actually I do understand disability <laughs> I just don't I just don't I don't sit you know it's it's because I haven't made it what defines me and actually I think it's really important that people do know uh that if you're if you're seeking legal advice you should go to the people who are best for the job and I think we should avoid that whole level of politics. But but for those people who've never been brave enough to ask me directly why I'm doing this work, or maybe have thought that it's because it's some sort of financially motivated reason, which anybody could tell from looking at companies' house, it clearly isn't. <laughs> That's the reason. You know, there is more yeah. to this from my perspective. I do care about it. And uh, and thank yeah. you for giving me the opportunity to to say that. Well, thank you very much for sharing that that story. And I think it makes a lot of sense about why you do what you do. And I wanted to find out about Chris Fry, the man behind all of these cases. And um, I'm very grateful for your time and for sharing that story with me. So thank you for being our fantastic guest on The Hearing Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Hearing. So thank you for listening to The Hearing Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast or if you've got any feedback, good or bad, or suggestions of guests or topics, then please do follow us on Twitter at Hearing Podcast, or you can find me at Diverse Matters. Subscribe, rate us, comment. We'd love to hear from you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.